0: Guys, I've got an awesome opportunity to tell you about. You can check out the Go Hunt Insider for free for a 30-day free trial right now. All you got to do is go to GoHunt, that's G-O-H-U-N-T forward slash J-Scott. Look for the blue Start Your Free 30-Day Trial button and click there. This is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. Insider changes how hunts and hunting information are found. When you go in the Insider, you'll be able to check out the filtering 2.0 system. You'll also be able to check out the draw odds for each unit, for each animal, for each state. Go Hunt Insider has the best draw odds on the market as far as the most accurate. There's no one that gets as meticulous level of accuracy as Go Hunt Insider. You'll see there's complete coverage of 4,200 different profiles every unit, every state, every species, every season. In-depth analysis, interactive maps, season trends, unit access, camping and lodging nearby, and historical weather. You'll also be able to see some of the additional benefits, the strategy articles on how to apply, let's say, in Arizona for elk, for antelope, for deer. You can go in there and see how in-depth they get It's an unbelievable opportunity, a free 30-day trial. They also do monthly giveaways. So just by being an Insider member, you get monthly giveaways. They give over $100,000 plus per year of giveaways, gear, tags, hunts. Another unbelievable thing about the Insider is the Go Hunt Gear Shop. So every time you buy something, you accumulate points. And in essence, it's giving money back to the insider. You might ask, well, how does this work with the Go Hunt Insider? How does the 30 day free trial work? You can sign up to try Insider's industry leading hunting products free for 30 days. They do take your credit card information so that you can automatically become a member. Once you, your 30-day trial ends, you can cancel at any time during the 30-day free trial, and it doesn't cost you a dime. You might ask, how is this different from other resources out there? Insider provides analysis and tools for every unit, every species, and every hunt. In each state that they cover, they don't just cover the top 10 units. Their coverage is super in-depth, and you can find those hidden gem units, maybe something that the draw odds... Uh, are a little bit better and maybe some quality it's slipped through the cracks and you might find a great hunt there. Right now Go Hunt Insider covers Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and check it out now. Since 1992, Herky Jerky has been committed to providing the highest quality beef, buffalo, elk, venison, turkey, and bacon snacks to their customers. Herky Jerky's award-winning jerky and meat sticks are high in protein, low in fat, and carbs, and are the perfect choice for hikers, hunters, anglers, boaters, campers, outdoorsmen, or anyone searching for a quick, healthy snack. All Herky Jerky products are proudly made in the USA with top quality ingredients. When Herky Jerky arrives at your front door, you can be confident that they will be the freshest you've ever tasted. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. For the month of July, it's a generous $10 off any order of $50 or more, and it includes free shipping. You must use the promo code JSCOTT during checkout to get the discount. Go to HerkyJerky.com. That's H-E-R-K-Y Jerky.com. Check them out.
1: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing good.
2: Trying to stay cool out here. How have you been?
1: Oh, uh, I'm just trying to get ready and finish put some last-minute touches on my doll sheep hunting gear. and. Oh, that's um, coming up.
2: That's what, Wednesday?
1: Yeah, I leave in a few days, and so I'm excited to um, – I'm anxious. No, nah, I'm, I'm just ready to go. I I'd wish it was tomorrow, and um, – you know, when you look forward to a hunt like this for this long, it's like, you know, you recheck your gear over and over and over, and you're just kind of staring at the wall ready to, you know, ready to get after it. So, um, yeah, it should be fun. I'll be there for a couple of weeks, uh, and then back to Colorado for a couple of weeks, and then I'll be off to Alaska again for my Chugach doll Sheep Hunt, um, and then and then I'll be here for a little while, and then uh, off to the Opstix Ranch. Um, one of the things about the odd six ranch is, uh, the big spring Creek fire, which is, I think as of a few minutes ago, I checked, it was like 106,000 acres, uh, that's burned there in South central Colorado. And it's not very far away from the odd six ranch. Uh, I've been down a couple times this summer, checking trail cameras, putting up new trail cameras and just, um, checking things out at the ranch. And man, what a difference between, uh, this year and last year, last year was one of the more, uh, you know, wet years as far as yeah. summer moisture and what have you. And this year it's just been very, very dry, uh, know, and and the, and the whole why, area.
2: Yeah. That's why the fire danger is just so bad this year.
1: We yeah. Had, you know, we had, I mean, it's been crazy so right here. Yeah. Yeah. R- right here by our house, uh, in Basalt, uh, there was a couple, young people in their early 20s that went and shot tracer rounds um up at the gun range there in basalt and started the lake lake christine fire that's now 6,000 acres but i mean um could see smoke and flames right here from from our house and um almost got the town of el Jebel, which is just west of of basalt and now it's kind of going back up you know in the direction towards eagle kind of up basalt mountain but uh you know, there's a handful of fires actually burning all over, uh, Colorado. Fortunately, Arizona hasn't, um, had many start up yet. Um, but, uh, that, that brings us to, you know, drought conditions. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy dry here. I had, we've had several questions come in. Um, and I'll dive into that. One of them, you know, talks about drought and what have you, but, uh, any thoughts on these fires? Um, have you ever seen it, you know, this bad in a while? Um, just your overall thoughts on, you know, having been a Colorado resident for a long time, you know, drought conditions here.
2: Well, yeah, this it, kind of it, it really, and you'll hear
1: people talk about 2002. I mean, 2002, we kind
2: of had similar, It was it's one of those similar but different type of deals. But, um, no, I, th- I think the big thing for people to, to really be sensitive, especially if you're a non-resident, Um, the reason why in my opinion the reason why we're dealing with such a bad why uh, it just seems like every other day a new fire pops up and it just goes Um, part of the reason is, is what exactly what you said is we had a real across the mountains especially we really had a good moisture cycle late and so a lot of that vegetation the summer you know the warm season grasses and then the fall the cool season grasses all just just i mean they were doing phenomenal i was up at 11,000-plus feet last year and one of the places I elk hunt. And, I mean, the Idol fescue, you know, which is a good, great, great forage for elk, especially winter range and everything else, a good, cool season grass, that stuff was three foot tall. I mean, it was just as big and just, just as lush as I've ever seen some of the, the vegetation. I was like, oh, my gosh, the animals are going to go into this winter exceptionally well there was just so much food well there you go you 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 build such a thick uh, a thick amount of grass and low-lying fire starter if you would you know for lack of a better term if that once that dries out if you don't have rain falling on it and greening it back up, and knocking down the old stuff, and and just starting to kind of break down that old stuff, it is just ladder fuel. It just it helps any little spark. That stuff's going to go, and it's going to go, and it's going to cast a good flame. And when it does, it's going to leap up, and it's going to grab the low lying, you know, pine limbs. And if the pines are stressed, you're done. You're done. And that's why yeah. so much of this is just you get a spark. And by, but before anybody can even get on it, it's already a few hundred acres, and it's just going. And then couple that with, you, you know, you get a strong, you know, whether you get a west south, it doesn't matter. You get a strong wind. Oh goodness, here we go. The problem, you know, and and so, for me, uh, as a habitat guy, you know, well, let's even say you, Jay. I mean, you let's let's you brought up Arizona. Let's bring up a great example. The Kayabab National Forest, and we've got a a friend down there that is the head fire guy, one of the head fire guys down in, uh, you know, habitat and fire guys down in the Kayabab. Um, You look at, I mean, I remember going back when I was in undergrad school, learning about the Kayabab, the Ponderosa Pine Forest, and all, and just the amount of just unreal, really good stuff coming out of the Kayabab. They do fire... I mean, fire in the Kaibab is just like,
1: yeah. I, um, you know,
2: it's, it is, and they do such a good job. And, and you and you look at, you know, anytime you say, oh, well, there was a fire in the Kaibab, oh, I know where I'm going because you get a good rain on that thing and it's going to bounce back and just be unbelievable. But that's because most of the fires, most of the fires in and around that they're doing end up being you know what they would you know what they classify as a cool or slight or a maybe maybe a moderate intensity to where fire on that landscape becomes a beneficial tool because it takes away the old stuff it clears away makes the path for new and it and it just basically reinvigorates stuff
0: When we look
2: at what's going on in Colorado now, and same thing with 2002, you look at the Hayman fire. And I'm actually talking with a buddy of mine now that is familiar with that Hayman area. The
1: problem is that you know, let's you know, you you Tell, tell the listeners about the Hayman area just so that they know where you're talking. All right. So roughly northwest
2: of Colorado Springs, southwest of Denver. Uh, starting from the foothills into you know and then west into the mountains a little bit. So you look at you know Colorado Springs, Woodland Park, a um, so lot you know uh, Sedalia. You know that you you'll you look at a map and it's like I said northwest of Colorado Springs uh, is the best kind of geographical location for that. Uh, it was it was a low lying mount, very mountainous, very hilly, very steep hills, but it's all ponderosa pine, oak, brush country predominantly uh then you get into some areas that had that thicker white pine and some other you know uh, maybe even lodgepole in there in some places but uh mostly mostly ponderosa pine and oak brush type of community and when that burned it just it just launched and it was a couple hundred thousand acres i mean or i want to i thought it was like 200,000 acres but maybe it wasn't quite that it was big just gargantuan and kind of like what you saw with the spring fire, I think the only reason, if I remember, we're talking 2002, so it's a while. Um, if I remember correctly, the only reason why they were able to shut that thing down is because I think it started raining on top of the fire and it helped. You know, and that's what I heard, you know, with the spring fire. I think that rain that they got on the spring fire just saved everybody's bacon because I, I don't think, I, it, it sounded for a while there that that thing was just going to go and it was it was going to be another um but is it still like the number fifth fourth largest fire in California? Well, I, I think it
1: I think it's actually moved up to number three and I just uh, I googled Googled the Heyman fire and it's hundred and thirty eight thousand one hundred and fourteen oh, okay. acres, the largest okay. uh, recorded fire. Okay. And you know the spring fire is, you know, hundred and six, so I mean it could very easily by the time it's done, it could it could be bigger than the Heyman fire. Um, yeah. an interesting thing about the Heyman fire couple things from hearing you talk is one last week i was in colorado springs for the united states senior open uh, golf championship and we were staying there at the broadmoor the, the the golf course um or the the tournament was being played on the uh the course there at the broadmoor and from our room it faced west and on a bunch of places on the course you could actually look back to the south um and you could see all those hills what a difference between you know those hills and then say south of the Broadmoor, where you know a lot thicker vegetation and what have you. And one of the golfers even asked, he's like, what, "What's what's out over there? What's what's the difference in those hills?" I'm like, "That that's that's where the forest fire came." And he's like, "No kidding." Well, um, and, and there burned, you had. I mean, it almost ye- burned all the way to the city. I mean, literally, they were worried about Colorado Springs in general. That's a different fire. That
2: that was one not too long ago. I know what you yeah yeah they had another one that yeah uh, and I'm oh I, is that a I'll, different fire? Yeah, that's a different fire. That okay. was only a few. That was only a few years back. Um, okay. And I'm golly, I'm completely spaced in the name of it right now. But that burned literally yeah out the back door. Um, you're talking Williams Canyon. Um, golly, what the heck was it? Maybe it was Williams fire. It, was it Williams fire? I don't quote me on that. No, that was a different fire, but equally just as possibly devastating. Now, uh, and I say that from a human standpoint, it it literally it came down the mountain and it got into the suburbs of, of West Colorado Springs and it torched a bunch of houses. It, it, it got ugly and it got ugly fast because that was a lot of heavy oak brush and Mount Mahogany in really, really rugged terrain. Um, the, the sad part about that is, you know, and there's a, there's obviously most of these fires have a history, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a backstory beyond what the fire happened. the sad part about that, that, uh, fire that what the, you know, the Colorado Springs one, uh, Forest Service and a lot of other people were telling Colorado Springs, listen, we need to start doing some prescribed burns. We need to do some habitat proof. We gotta do something because this is this is gonna end someday it's gonna end badly. And Colorado Springs, if my memory serves me, they were the ones that would deny any sort of prescribed burn for you have, you know, because of the Clean Air Act, um, because of the size of the city, you'd have to my understanding, again, I'm not I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is they had to get permission from the city in order to be able to basically buy it, and they had to sign off on any sort of, you know, fire or any sort of, you know, burn or anything that's going to happen because of Clean Air, Clean Air Act considerations, and the city never would. And it just, and there were so many people that were pissed off at the city when this fire went up because they just blamed the city. They're like, see, told you. We knew this was going to happen. We knew that there was people that wanted the Forest Service and other organizations wanted to mitigate this, you always said no, and now what? Now you know. Now our homes are burning, um, but in you know, from an ecological standpoint in that area, you know, when I was on the board of directors for Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, I lived. That's where I lived. I lived in Greenmount Falls, one of the towns that was evacuated for that that fire. I, I'll tell you, I physically, personally ran a chainsaw and did habitat improvement projects for that, it's called Rampart, the Rampart Sheep Herd S-34, which is just outside of Colorado Springs. That sheep herd used to be huge. Bighorn Sheep, low canyon country, okay? That sheep herd used to be huge, a couple hundred animals. Now it's down to just a handful because the habitat just started getting old, decadent, you know, just major shrub and oak brush encroachment. This fire. Did a world of good for the bighorn sheep population in that from a habitat standpoint, in that area. And I know that there's going to be a lot of folks that are looking at these fires, are you know, it, that are going on in Colorado right now, and be like, yeah, you know, this can be great, great, great. Well, yes, uh, in some areas, you know, when the Spring Creek fire started, I looked at some of the pictures coming out of it, and I'm like, man, that was it. That burned the meadow. And then it seemed like it started out, maybe it was a grass fire underneath some of the trees, and it looked like something. I'm like, man, maybe this is going to be good. And then I talked to a friend of mine who she works on the fire incident command. Uh, she's up on the Chateau fire right now. Or what? Uh, I asked her, I said, what's the intensity looking like in the spring fire? Well, that's when it just turned. And she said, it's, it's bad. It's, some of the places up there, it's burning. That The heat is so bad. That it's sterilizing soil, you know, more than a foot deep under, you know, it's, it's just torching, the just just nuking that the soil and the the everything. I mean, just it's sterilizing, and that's the problem. If we go back and we look at what happened with the Hayman fire, yes, there are some really beneficial, you know, really good things that happened inside the Hayman burn footprint that really helped ecological function get back on on track the way it needed to be. However, there are a lot of places that are now uh, literally ecologically different uh, because of the nature of the fire that went through there. It, It burned it so badly that it's still slowly recovering. Yes, they went in and reseeded. And that reseeding effort has made a world of difference as far as how much ground grass cover and vegetative cover is in there. But if they had not reseeded, I mean, we would still be, you know, dealing in, in a lot of these places with just little patchy shrubs here and there. Uh, it's just it's amazing when you go in and you hike around the Hayman fire um, to see the difference. Now, it's not to say that there's not animals in there. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it, it, it's a it's a different landscape. And it's taken 15, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> it's taken 10, 15 years to become something that it is today, you know. So, I mean, it. some of these fires, the way they're burning, and as hot as they're burning, you know, nature will recover. But it ain't going to be what you what you expect it to be, and it, it, it may not bounce back as fast as what you want. You know, you, there's people, uh, and this is the other thing, too. You know, if you, you know show pe- people show pictures. Oh, look it! You know, the, you know, here's the Spring Creek fire, and here's a herd of elk that are out in the uh, in the scar of the fire. Oh, they're already moving back in. Yeah, if your house burns to the ground, do you just walk away and never come back, or do you come back to where your scar of your house was and just walk around and go, "What the frickin' heck just happened? <laughs> My house was yeah. just here." You know what the so a lot of that that initial elk and deer activity that they see back into the scar of the fire is just elk coming back in and going. This was my bedroom. What the hell happened to my bedroom? You know, this is where I was. This is where we go to eat dinner. This is dinner. This is our restaurant. This is where we eat every night. Uh, what the heck? What the? There's no grass here. What's going? And so they will. They'll wander around for a little bit. Because they are on a pattern. They know where they get food. They know where they get water. They know where they go to bed. And a fire burns through. All that, you know, the fire disturbs them. The human activity disturbs them. But all of a sudden that disturbance stops. And so they go, well, okay, maybe I go back. And they go back and then they start wandering around going, uh, crap. Now what? And then they move off and they'll they'll figure it out. They'll figure out where they need to go to, to make a living for the next, you know, however long. But... Yeah, I mean, we, if, we, if, if on some of these fire areas we start to see uh, a gentle monsoon cycle, meaning where the monsoon moisture comes in and, and maybe it's, it's uh, you know, an afternoon rainstorm, but every day we just get a, a, a gentle soaker, that, that's going to be very, very, very beneficial. But if we, and unfortunately this is what happened in some of the Hayman Burnscar area, and it just seems like it happens this way, I think just come the you know, thermal dynamics on, on the, the heat and, and I, I, for a variety of reasons. It seems like they get the fire out and the next rainstorm that comes over is this monster of a thunderstorm that dumps eight inches in one storm. And it, and it literally takes, yeah, it literally takes all the ash, every ounce of topsoil that even thought about hanging on, and it just washes it right to the creek bottom, leaving nothing but just crushed gravel, cr- you know, crushed granite um, and rock. And I hope that doesn't happen. If if we have the ability to, ha- if if the good Lord gives us the blessing of just a, few just give me some gentle soakers, just periodic soakers over the top of it let's just wet the ash down let's just settle the remaining topsoil let's just get it soaked yes in some of the areas where we have a uh, low intensity fire that grass is going to just
1: explode
2: the shrubs are going to explode the aspen shoots are going to explode even some of the moderate intensity fire areas the shrubs are going to jump back. The aspens are going to jump back. We'll have some grasses that jump back. Um, I'm sure that the Forest Service and some of the area conservation stuff are going to go back in and probably do aerial seeding. They usually do just from a, if nothing else, from a soil stabilization thing and an erosion control. Um, but if if we end up... But... but um, once you start getting that moderate intensity and then you move into that high or extreme intensity heat, those are those, you'll hear people talk about hydrophobic soils where basically it makes it to where um, it just the soil, the water beads up on the surface and runs right off. It doesn't even go in. It doesn't even soak in. And so it just, it becomes this erosion nightmare Uh, bare soil nightmare that now if there's if if you have some ponderosa pine that has lingered in that area or you had some pine cones that were you know closed up tight and and were released because of the fire okay ponderosa pine does good in that gravel or that granite you know crushed granite gravel type scenario Um, but man in some of these places where you have oak brush um, or locusts The problem, the growth form of those species can be problematic, and it can absolutely fundamentally change the landscape structure to where it may actually not even be that great for habitat for
1: critters. So it's going to be interesting to see what bounces back, man, you know? For sure. I mean, um, while you were talking there, I looked, it was Waldo Canyon fire. There we go. There it is. Black Forest fire. Yeah. Yeah. There Waldo were two Canyon. there, um, a yep. year apart, Black Forest and Waldo Canyon. but uh, yeah, Waldo Canyon. Yeah, I mean, um, from a standpoint of, you know, the Ot Six Ranch is fairly close to the spring fire. From what we've heard, the spring fires burn very, very hot. Um, if they don't go back in and do much reseeding or anything like that, in your mind, will it affect and could it impact say, the Ops 6 Ranch where um, elk, you know, wintering, you know, could they just, they're going to have to go somewhere. Um, Do you think it could, you know, the area near the Ops 6 Ranch could see an increase in elk numbers?
2: Uh, That is possible. What I would want to see is what does the migration pattern look like in that area right now. Um, And the reason why I ask that is, say, for instance, Let's, let us, let's take the, the south end of the optics and create an imaginary east-west line okay? that goes up and over the ridge, over to the sand dunes. Uh, mm-hmm. If there is existing elk movement north-south, over that line, and there are some elk that are on the south end of that and they're over in that Spring Creek region, Absolutely. I think you could see a lot of those animals head up and over and and they're going to go where the better habitat is. However, if the population of elk in that area generally always stays south of that line and they, uh, excuse me, say they winter further south or they winter southwest or south, you know, if they winter somewhere else, what I would anticipate is they just move farther in the directions they normally go
1: you're know I mean? seeking seeking what they're looking for uh, yeah
2: that's right that's right so I, i'd be i'd be curious to know what the uh, movement pattern the the seasonal migratory pattern is in that region where where the you know um, obviously well, i guess you can't even say obviously where across the highway there you know i'm i'm sure that there's a lot of elk that probably winter and stay south of that highway but the area that's north there Um, it'd be interesting to see what their movement pattern is. And if there's connectivity, I absolutely, absolutely they could. And, and this is, you know, again, you and I have had conversations about habitat stuff on the optics. Uh, I'll tell you right now, this is where you sit there and, and at me as a wildlife manager, I would absolutely triple down on everything I could do to improve the habitat quality on that property for no other reason if you do say right now let's just let's just say the optics ranch has a, a, a wintering population what do you think 500 animals a thousand well how many how many last year did you think you guys had on the ranch
1: Well about a thousand resident elk is what we figured kind of during okay. that time frame of fall you know the fall okay. time frame fall to winter okay so if that's the yeah. case
2: that's what's there when you have a full complement of all the habitat that's south of your property. If right. in fact you do have that mixing to where now maybe there maybe there's another thousand that winter south of there, is that ranch going to be able to sustain two thousand or or even another five hundred? So from a standpoint, you know, they're, and they're, I guarantee you there's two there's there's two types of people listening to this conversation right now. There's some that you know the anti-private land people are like. ah! You know, I don't want. I, I don't want you know, screw you and you know, stacking all those animals down on private. Yeah, yeah. Well, the flip side is there's a lot of e- private property is a lot easier to do habitat improvement projects on than than federal ground. Period. End of discussion. That that that's just a non start. So you have the ability. The land the landowner has the ability to do stuff on that ranch right now with no one's permission. So they don't have to do cultural surveys. He doesn't have to do, you know, a NEPA, you know, it, it, he doesn't have to do anything. He just says, you know what, we're going to go in and, and, and do this. Or we're gonna do. We, he can do that on his private property. So if we all of a sudden have looked and say, okay, it's Spring Creek Fire, and this is where when it's all said and done, I do plan on pulling the, talking with the fire guys, and pulling a map and taking a look at where, you know, what, they map it out. They know exactly what the areas of intensity are versus, you know, light intensity. I want to look at that map. What does the intensity look like? And if, if if it turns out that the north end of that Spring Creek fire was just brutally intense, then me as a manager, I look at it and I'm like, okay, that tells me that the recovery, again, unless we, unless they go in and reseed and and we get good moisture on it so that the seed germinates and actually survives unless all that all of that merges and comes together marvelously there's going to be a whole bunch of animals in need of food period and right. so Can you, does your ranch, does that ranch right now have the habitat quality to support an influx of 500 to another 1,000 head of animals or not? And if you have the ability to go in and say, okay, we can go in and we can do the habitat improvement projects to ensure that or at least to to help that, oh, my gosh, heck, yeah. And it's going to benefit everybody in the long run because in the short term, that private ranch may actually be the, 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 the fail safe for where a lot of those animals can go back to, have sanctuary, have food, they can survive, and then let the Spring Creek area over these next couple of years start to bounce back. And then those, you know, if it does, if the them start coming back in, the grass starts coming back in, in those moderate and low intensity areas, get a good soaker of rain, sure, those elk are going to jump right back in there. But if it's if it is as brutally intense as what I've seen some reports on, it's not gonna bounce back as quickly as some people want. And that's where having the ability to, to work on what you're talking about, having that private ranch might be golden for, for that population in that area. From an elk survival and population diet you know, fitness
1: standpoint. Just from a just from an elk Healthy elk herd standpoint, it yeah. might be a saving grace. Yeah, exactly. um, Chris, let's take a let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then I want to uh, dive into one of the first questions um, that we got from a listener. Okay.
0: Okay, guys, I want to tell you about one of the new sponsors at the J. Scott Outdoors podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about this awesome team of dynamic realtors that I know very well, Dar Colburn, who has been my hunting and guiding partner for over 20 years has partnered up with my nephew Jay Pyburn to create the Colburn Pyburn team. If you're looking to buy or sell any real estate in the state of Arizona, You can't go wrong with the Colburn-Pyburn team. Dara and I have been in the real estate business for over 20 years together. And my nephew Jay is an up-and-coming realtor that has many sales under his belt and and is a phenomenal resource for any person looking to buy or sell real estate in the state of Arizona. Just for the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, if you have any real estate needs at all, if you use the Colburn-Pyburn team, you're going to get a $500 gift certificate from any retail shop of your liking. Kuyu, Outdoorsman's, Sportsman's Warehouse, Cabela's, Amazon, you name it. $500 if you use the Colburn Pyburn team and they sell one of your properties that you either buy or sell, you get a five hundred dollar gift certificate. All you gotta do is send an email to Colburn Team at gmail.com and get your real estate needs taken care of. That's C O L B U R N, P Y B U R N Team. Colburn Team at Gmail.com. Hey guys, I'm excited about one of the new sponsors of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Canyon Coolers is based right here in Arizona and makes premium, roto-molded ice chests that work. The Outfitter Series coolers are made with near-vertical exterior walls to fit snugly into tightly packed hunting rigs without a lot of wasted space. They come at a fraction of the cost of some of the big-name brands. Canyon Coolers is a small operation. If you have a question, if you have a problem... You can pick up the phone and talk to a human being, not an answering service. Canyon Coolers offers the industry's only Vortex-like warranty, which is completely no-fault, no-hassle warranty for as long as you own the cooler. How can you beat that? It's literally the last ice chest you'll ever need to buy. Just for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, you save 10%. All you got to do is go to canyoncoolers.com and enter the J. Scott promo code at checkout, and you're going to get a 10% discount.
1: Okay, Chris, we've got a question here um, from on Instagram. Uh, it's S-C-L-I-N-E 321. Hey, Jay, I have a question about South Central Colorado. I didn't draw, so I'm going back to my old honey hole. This year, I understand this is one of the worst droughts on record. I'm hunting near Pagosa Springs. Uh, I'm still headed up the week of September 18th, trying to catch the early rut. If you have another podcast, can you discuss drought conditions? I'm curious how you would hunt it. Will the river count as a water source? How important will it be to find wallows? How will it affect grazing? Thanks for your help. What do you think, Chris?
2: Uh, I think you need to go look at the picture I posted. This is, oh, what is it, a week ago now, or some of the, the latest drought um, map. Southwest Colorado is just its just scary. It's just so dry. It's just, it's just bad. So, yeah, I mean, I, I the thing is, is you know, I, I listen to how he's phrasing his questions. I, I the thing is, is, I think he knows the answer. Um, yeah, water is, I mean, waters becomes key at this point. Again, people, you know, understand. You know, elk. Yes, they are going to choose the areas that have the best green up. That you know, if there's if there's green grass and forbs and, and shrubs and stuff around, they're going to go. They're going to they're going to migrate or. Um, Concentrate around those areas, but elk are grazers, and so they can function on some of the older, decadent stuff that was around that might be still lingering. Especially if you're in, you're talking about you know some blue grama grass or those fescues and stuff that, that that hold their nutritive value for longer. But they need water, so my answer to him, my opinion to him is, yeah, that the, the rivers obviously. I mean, if if that's the only place they're going to get water, there's, there's going to be elk utilizing that to get water. Um, but that, I, I would be, I'm, and I will be. I mean, it doesn't matter where you hunt in the state right now. It You know, until we start getting some really good monsoons, water is going to be key. So, and well, I guess north central part of the state is not as bad as, you know, the central part of the state, and then it isn't even close to what the south southern part and southwest part of the state is. I mean, if you go from north to south it goes from eh it's not really that great all the way down to oh my gosh, this is ugly. You know, so it's it's better the farther north you go. So I guess there you go. So anybody's listening, it the, the conditions habitat conditions just are better the farther north in Colorado you go. But if you're hunting central and southern Colorado, water's gonna be key. And if you can find any place that you have water tucked up into cover, up into habitat, somewhere up on the mountain, on a bench, on a little, you know, a little meadow, a little, little drainage, a little seep, a little spring, a little wallow, whatever. If you, if you can find those little remote water sources and, it, and it's even close to a bedding area or a feeding area, oh my gosh, yes. I, I want to know where every one of those things are. So water absolutely is going to be key. And then as far as food and and affecting grazing, yeah, I mean, I talk about this, uh, yeah, it was 2000, the summer, or excuse me, yeah, Uh, no, it doesn't matter. We've had some years where you you have these squirrely uh, weather patterns where, again, that's the thing with the monsoons. It's not like back east, you know, kind of back east you'll have these days where, um, oh, we're going to get rain. And it's like, a it, it covers the entire state, north to south, and it's a wave that everybody gets rain and they just get a soaker. That's not what western monsoonal moisture usually is. Western monsoon moisture is big thunderstorms, and that side of the mountain just got three inches of rain. My side of the mountain hasn't had rain in three months. And it literally it is that. I mean, it, it can be that stark of a difference. If, if, that, and if we start getting a cycle where the southwest portion of the state starts getting those afternoon thunderstorms, then it's going to be up to, you know, when you if you can do some free season scouting, great. If you have a contact in that area that can kind of keep you in the loop on what's going on, great. Otherwise, keep your face every day glued to any sort of weather app that will allow you to watch you know the the radar you know what what rainstorms are going where because if the rain falls on one side of the mountain but not the other i can tell you right now where the elk are going to go or if the rain you know falls on this end of the valley but this other end you know the the other end doesn't really get it guess where the elk are going to go They're going to go to where the vegetation quality is better. And in the situation where we have out here out west, that can sometimes become spotty, where one area is much better than another area. That's why a lot of times you'll hear people talk, you know, when the season's over. You know, you'll hear people talk, and I've heard this repeatedly, maybe uh, southwest part of the state had a, quote-unquote, normal moisture cycle year. And so when the elk, geez, I I talk about this with rethinking the rut series. Why, you know, what affects cows cycling into estrus? And so if you've got a normal moisture year and all things are equal, the elk are going to go into, those cows are going to go into that fall cycle on a normal cycle. So the people that hunt down there, that have been hunting for years go into their season and they're like, oh yeah, it was awesome. It was just like I, you know, just like I expected. But then meanwhile, you talk to somebody that, that hunts up in the White River National Forest or, you know, you say the central part of the state and they're like, goodness, freaking gracious, I couldn't buy an elk until the last part of the season. And then you'll talk to somebody who was up in the Route National Forest up on the you know on the border of Wyoming and they're like, late are you kidding me there was nothing going on late it was all early and so you sit there and you, you know be, you know you'll have hunters start arguing with you you're an idiot you don't even know what you're talking about because okay hey, you're three different areas of the state having three different types of of environmental factors that affected the, the elk rut it, it it changes well that part of it is when we look at what the rainfall does especially on these dry years Man, they will move to where the green up is. They are going to try to choose the best location that they can. Um, and in this case, I mean, goodness gracious, we could, we could. I mean, anybody that's anybody that's a subscriber to the elk module who's watched that, you know, the, the rethinking the rut series knows exactly where I'm headed on this one. But you know, I talk in that series. There's a hand. There's a bond. There's Everybody always talks about a late rut. Well, there's really only one thing that causes a late rut, really, from an environmental factor, but there's a whole bunch of other things that will actually pull elk to cycle early. Well, the one thing, the the primary thing is poor body condition. So, from the cow, if they don't have that 9%, roughly 9% body fat composition, they're not going to cycle normally. Well, here we are. If the vegetation has been that bad this summer because of high drought conditions, and those cows still are nursing calves, so they're putting energy into those calves, we very well could, in some areas of the state, see, uh, cows cycling maybe a little later than normal. So, I guess that's something to consider for him. You know, he said, what did they say? He's heading out the 18th? Yeah
1: that was a couple things. There's a couple things that I want to point out about, um, he's talking about going out the 18th. Um, I don't know if that's a, you know, f- from a work standpoint or if he's thinking, you know, that's going to be the best part of the season. One thing I would make sure he understands is the moon is full on the 25th. Um, and you know, it's, it's a new moon, uh, on the eighth or ninth. And, you know, depending on where he's going, you know, exactly. You know, obviously, like what Chris is saying is, you know, watch the weather and see where the you know where the waters hitting exactly. I I can't reiterate that more. Like you take Unit Nine in Arizona or Unit Ten in Arizona, um, you just yeah. if you can monitor throughout the uh, summer exactly where those clusters of storms have hit, and in your summer scouting when you're driving around, literally. Try and gauge, okay, this part of the unit has seen dry and make notes of it. Okay, this part of the unit from here to here seems like, you know, I drove through here and they've got puddles everywhere. Okay, let's, let's come back in a week or two and see if, okay, all of a sudden we've got a big green up. Um, I see it a lot in Arizona, especially in 9 and 10 and those, you know, especially those two arid units like, it can make all the all the difference in the world. Unit 9 specifically, like, you've got that highway that splits the units into a east and a west half. I've seen it where all, you know, most of the elk are on the west side one year, and the very next year, most of the elk could be on the east side uh, as far as they could, as well as they could be north or they could be south. I mean, the, the elk will literally bounce around and try and find the best feed possible. So, you know, Chris, I think, Uh, you're given good advice, but I think not only to Colorado, it applies to New Mexico, it applies to Nevada, it applies to Utah. Yeah. In in general, anybody elk hunting, you know, follow where those fresh greenups are and you're going to find more elk. You're typically going to find more cows. And if you're hunting during the rut, you're going to find more bulls. Yeah. Um, the other thing would be, you know, he's talking about coming and hunting, you know, starting on the 18th, um, leading right into a full moon on the 25th, um, You know, I might say, hey, maybe you consider coming a few days early, Um, you know, maybe that 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, Um, and, you know, we've we've had the discussions about hunting during the moon and all that stuff, but with drought conditions, one would say, okay, well, maybe we need to go later because the cows aren't going to be as fleshy, they may not cycle, you know, so, I mean, I could play it either way um what are your thoughts as far as you know picking a later date because you think maybe the cows might cycle at a later period chris
2: yeah see and and that's kind of if, if if it was me um and it's kind of funny I, since i've got i've got to go to arizona and, and guide this year i don't i don't personally have my own flexibility on when i hunt the in during the season however I think I I probably would. Well, God. see, I, okay, now you're talking about personal. See, I love to hunt early. Um, I like hunting when the bulls are just breaking up out of their bachelor groups. I like hunting bulls that have fewer cows around them. Um, so I really do like earlier rather than later, personally, for my own personal hunts. However, if if I wanted to hunt When the bulls are likely going to be bugling more, then yes, I would seriously, me personally, I would probably lean towards the later half of the season this year if I was hunting in the southwest, southern, or southern part of the state. Um, Of Colorado. Of of, of Colorado. of Colorado at this time, if, if nothing changes, if the drought continues, then I probably would lean towards a little later. I actually am not too worried about the full moon. I've I, I, um, some of the best bugling activity actually can be around that. So sometimes you can use that full, that bright moon phase to your advantage if you know what you're doing. And, I, and we've talked about it. I've talked to, I talk about it quite a bit. On the elk module. Uh, So I'm not so worried about the the full moon portion of it. Uh, He's picking a time period that, that goes over that fall equinox, and there's a lot of people that think, well, the fall equinox is what kicks a lot of things in gear. Well, yeah, photo period, yeah. But body fat composition is a big driver on, you know, yeah, photo period might flip the switch, but if there's no... Imagine, yeah, there you go. Imagine a a motor that has electric start. Photo period is flipping the switch. But if there's no gas in the tank, it ain't firing up.
1: So photo
2: period might allow the hormonal change to happen, but if she doesn't have that body condition, she's not going to cycle. And so she might come in late, or she might miss it, or whatever. But that's where i would start to lean towards okay i'll err on the side of caution and maybe maybe push my my hunt a little later if i'm going in the southern part of the state just to to hedge my bets against that
1: and you mentioned the drought map um i actually about an hour or so ago on my instagram uh, story page i i posted a picture of actually the whole western u.s and if you look at southwest colorado like like where he's talking pagosa springs like it's maroon like it's the darkest the worst color of all showing the worst most severe drought extreme drought but then you know you you take if you if you take colorado and just cut it in half north to south pretty much the from you know the middle line up it's not too bad to be honest with you and then as you get up into wyoming i mean some of Wyoming and Montana, you know, were 150, 160, even 200% of normal. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of those guys in, in Wyoming and Montana, like, you know, the rivers still in Montana are, you know, barely floatable and fishable, and, you know, they've got tons of water up there. Um, and then, you, you know, if you look at that same map, you know, northern New Mexico is super dry, uh, northwest Arizona – um, you know, there's that whole swath of maroon line there that just, that, you know, doesn't look good. Uh, Chris, another thought or question that he had was, uh, or part of that question was he was, um, will a river count as a water source? And I'd say absolutely. I mean, any water, yeah. a stock tank, a yeah. water, you know, a, a water trough, but a, a river, live water, of course, um, elk love streams. Uh, they love rivers um you know live water for sure and then he says how important will it be to find wallows well for me and chris I'll want you to weigh in on this uh wallows are fantastic if the temperature is hot so not necessarily having a huge deal or significance with drought conditions more along the lines of if the week that you're hunting or the week before you're hunting that it's been fairly dry, not a lot of moisture. It gets warm, gets hot. Um, I find that those elk really hit those wallows hard because they're trying to cool down. It, it really, in my mind, the elk, uh, you know, hitting wallows has nothing to do with what happened over the whole summer. In my mind, it has more to do with in the immediate vicinity of your hunt time frame, you know, in the last two weeks, has it been real hot and dry? Well, if the answer is yes, then yeah, wallows are huge. If it's um, you know rain everywhere over the last two weeks, you know going into your hunt and there's puddles literally everywhere, and there's water everywhere, then you know wallows are going to be harder because there's more water around. Um, why don't you weigh in on that wallow situation, Chris?
2: Yeah, and it, it depends on what his what the nature of the the specific nature of the question of what his intent was in that question because elk. Elk don't necessarily need wallows. They, they, from a physiological standpoint, they don't need wallows. They will use wallows. They love to have wallows, but they don't need them. They'll actually, they'll roll around in dry dirt. They'll piss in the ground and roll around in dry dirt. You'll hear people talk about dry wallows. You'll see that in Arizona a lot. Um, they don't they don't need a wet wallow. They love them, and they will use them. They don't need them. So if they're not, if, if if there just aren't any wallows in the area, that doesn't mean that there's no elk in the area, um, as long as there's, they're able to get water. So if it's, a, say you have a, a, you know, a river and there's good elk habitat everywhere around that river, but there's really no free water anywhere that they can get muddy, doesn't matter per se, that the, the elk are still going to be somewhere around there. They, most of the time, um, he so he might be just talking about, you know, do I need to find wallows as in do I need to find those little water, you know, if an elk is not going to drink out of a river, do I need to find some other water source like a wallow or spring or something like that? If the river is there, the elk will use it, but they will use any other water source that they can find as well. So I look if if, you know, that's how I evaluate wallows and and whether or not I want to actually hunt them or sit them or whatever, because, you know, again, it, it if people have not experienced Arizona, this is one thing that I hope um, your podcast and and having these discussions, the least will help. One of the cool things about Arizona is you just don't have rivers everywhere. You know
1: what I mean? So most of the water how about, how about nowhere? <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> you don't have them anywhere or everywhere. You don't have them anywhere. I mean, maybe Unit One, maybe Unit Twenty Seven, but pretty dang limited for sure. I, I
2: was thinking—that's uh, what I was saying. I was thinking over on that east side, but um, the that, that and,
1: and what east, we would call a river in Arizona is by far, you know, not a yeah, Colorado and a Wyoming creek. and Montana standards Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a creek.
2: Um. Yeah, when you can hop, skip, and jump across it on little, on walking across rocks and never get your foot wet. That's a creek. Yeah. So, but what you do have is a lot of man-made water, and you have, in Arizona, you have a dip. You've got some that are in earthen dams, which you guys call tanks, but they're basically a stock pond, dirt pond. Then you have some water that are in little concrete metal drinkers, like a like a like a cattle tank or a, a little tiny water source there. So the elk have the ability to utilize those stock ponds as wallows and and go you know play around in those water sources, but they will also absolutely use those man-made little metal drinkers. And so but you will watch just how far elk will go from bedding to one of those little physical drinkers. I've literally followed them a mile and a half, and I'm, I'm not pushing them. I'm just shadowing, listening, watching where, where they're going. It is not uncommon to watch elk move from where they got water and where they're feeding to their bedding area and go a mile, a mile and a half, or two miles from where they were getting water. And there may be a whole bunch of different animals coming to the same water source. And at night, it just becomes this, ab- what you guys, you know, I remember the first time I heard you call it that, uh, Jay, a meatball. You know, just where you get just this, there's like three different harems and herd bulls and satellite bulls all converging on one water source. Sometimes they commingle. Other times you'll hear, they'll just take their turn. They'll, they'll all kind of stand back and then someone you know one group will go in and they'll get their stuff meanwhile the other two two groups are kind of hanging out there everybody's bugle calling you know screaming going crazy and then the one group gets done they move off okay the next group comes in they utilize it and then then by morning they just drift off and they all go their separate direction but it's 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 amazing how far they will travel daily from water to to feeding and bedding and it's not even, and that's not even what I would consider in those critical years. So if we get in those situations where, goodness gracious, it's, you know, we're in an exceptional drought or whatever, do not, do not overlook the, th- or or or, uh, or take for granted that you might have elk, and they might be doing it in the cover of darkness. They might be moving more than two miles daily. At night to go grab water tank up and then head back and they go back up in there wherever they spend the rest of the day and and you know feed and do all that stuff but they might move long distance so now if he says he's going back to his quote-unquote honey hole which tells me that's an area that he's hunted before that he knows I will absolutely hammer what I always hammer you expand your area man you know yes you know this particular drainage and that particular ridge but you might want to look at the next valley over and the next valley after that and you want to look at those two ridges you expand your visual image on where you're going to look because they might spread out a little bit and they might move a heck of a lot farther than you anticipate
1: yeah i couldn't agree more um one thing I might throw in as a little bit of a tip there, it's um, you were talking about water sources and what have you, you talked about elk taking their turns. If you hear elk splashing, you know you're close to a water hole and you literally can hear a bull splashing in the water. You know, you'll see them with their front um, hoof. You know, They're splashing water under themselves. Uh, or if you hear cows you know, running in the water, You want to get as quickly as you can, as close to that tank as you can, and you want to take that noise that those elk are making and let that kind of muffle and cover your sound as you approach. But I wouldn't hesitate to get there pretty quick. Um, But as you're moving in trying to get close to the water hole, obviously you're moving your feet fairly fast, but you're also scanning really heavy with your eyes because a lot of times there'll be other elk that are, you know, 30, 40, 50 yards, just kind of grazing and feeding. But it, a lot of times, does give you a great opportunity to, you know, get over there and see what's going on and don't necessarily be as worried about your noise. Um, more be concerned about other elk, maybe, you know, that aren't in the water splashing but might be around, um, you know, and if you hear bulls fighting in a tank and you hear just, you know, lots of commotion, you know use that opportunity to to slide over there and see what kind of bulls, you know, are in the tank and what they're doing and then a lot of times even if you're not in range, I mean you you almost have a 50/50 shot if you just get pretty close trying to determine what those bulls are, if any of them are a shooter and then you have a pretty good chance that they're going to either come out of the tank when they go to leave by you or you know they may go dead away but they could walk literally right by you. I've had elk where I've snuck up to the tank and they come walking up over the dike of the tank and literally walk right by me. Yeah. And we've talked about it before, but it's good to reiterate. Do not think that the only
2: time that they're in there is at night. I mean, depending on where that water source is, especially if you get in, um, I got somebody trying to call me. Um, If you get in, if you find that water source that's in close to a bedding area, if it's in close to some really good cover, then do not think that they won't be out there in the morning. They might be at their 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, they could be out there at any time. So if if you end up getting it, and this happened a couple seasons ago with me and a client down in Arizona, uh, they weren't talking. It was slow. They're just You couldn't you just couldn't buy an elk to try to, to, to call it and, and get it to talk with you. But they were hitting water, and, and we decided, I said, you need to sit in this blind on this water hole. And we got in there at 4 a.m., and he stayed there, you know, the first day. He was like, why am I climbing into a ground blind at 4 a.m.? They don't hit water until the afternoon. I'm like, nah, no, get in there. And, I mean, he had elk in front of him almost constant the entire day just because the location was good. It was it was a water source that was close to a couple of different bedding areas. So if you find, you know, for this individual, if he's out there scouting or if he's hunting, and all of a sudden you come across just a smoking hot wallow, uh, buddy, I... I absolutely would camp on that thing because you might have more than one group all coming to that water source, and again, they all you know, bulls want to keep themselves separated from other bulls, cows oftentimes will want to keep themselves separated from other cows, so they might automatically just segregate themselves, utilize their utilization of that water source temporally from a time standpoint so some might come in the morning others might come in the afternoon and others might come in the middle of the night get there and camp on it and see what ends up happening
1: for sure um the the uh, listener also asked the question about how does it affect grazing i think what he's talking about is how does cattle grazing affect in a drought um well again, back to what we were saying about greenups, you know, the elk are going to go where the fresh grass, where the, you know, the the best feed is. Um, And I've said before that, you know, elk, if they have a choice, they're going to feed in a different pasture. If if there's just cattle everywhere and they're pounding it, they're going to move over and find where they're not, you know, they'll feed right next to cattle and no problem. But if they have a choice, If, say, there's a pasture fence and all they got to do is hop over the fence, they're going to feed over on the non-cattle side of the fence. Uh, As well as if you find an area that's, you know, been pounded by sheep or pounded by cattle and, um, you know, there's just everywhere you look there's cattle, Um, you know, I I would keep searching the next pasture over, try and, you know, find where those fence lines are try and find where those wire gates are and be like, okay, what's it look like? Okay, there's grass over here and there's no grass on this side. You know, the elk are probably going to be on the on the side of the fence where the grass is. But one thing you have to watch, too, is when cattle are, you know, densely in an area in the summer and then they, you know, we've been having monsoon rain or what have you, and then they, the ranchers move the cattle off. If the moisture is right, a lot of times within about a week, there will be fresh grass that is coming up, and those elk will very quickly move right back in there, right in behind the cattle. Um, curious if you had any thoughts on that, Chris? No, you absolutely nailed it because that that
2: was going to be what I added. And you, yeah, no, you covered it. The thing I think okay. you ought to do. The, the, the only the only thoughts I would add to that. Entire statement are two things. One, uh, if he's talking about cattle, if he's talking about cattle grazing, uh, and if he's talking about cattle grazing on public ground, Forest Service down there, it's mostly Forest Service. Pick up the phone, call the Forest Service, find out if they even put turned cattle out into that allotment. See if they even allowed grazing this year. They may have not even opened up the allotment because there's no food. So pick up the Forest Service and talk to them and say, uh, did did anybody turn cattle out into this area, yes or no? And if yes, okay, when did they put them in and when are they supposed to get them out? When are they getting out? Because sometimes, even though they might open it, they may only open that allotment for half the, uh, half the time that it normally is, just because there's just no food. So utilize that resource call the forest department you know, Forest Service and, and get a hold of the department that manages the grazing allotment and ask them are, are there cattle in there now or are there going or will there be um, because there may not but you you're absolutely right if if the rains come then you might be better off in a place that had grazing if the rains do not come, then you might be better off in a place that doesn't have, the, did not have the grazing. So that's where you're going to have to keep track of the weather and call the forest service and find out what's going on from the, from the cattle standpoint. If you just talking about uh, elk grazing, then I think we've covered it. You know, they're going to go where the, where the better quality of vegetation is.
1: For sure. A couple things I'd also like to point out about drought conditions and this is, coming from someone that literally spent 20 seasons, um, you know, in Arizona, you know, chasing those elk around, videoing them, what have you. If you've got an Arizona, New Mexico, maybe even southern Utah tag, southern Colorado tag, uh, if you've got some of these limited entry units, um, you know, some of these units, the historic units, you know, nines, tens, three Cs, ones. um, you know some of the better units in Arizona, some of the better units in, in Utah, uh, some of the better units in Nevada. Um, if you're dealing with drought conditions, and I'm just telling you guys to literally slap yourself here and listen, you have to adjust your expectations for what you're expecting on a hunt. And I've heard it over and over and over. Well, I waited 22 years to draw this tag and I drew this tag and my answer to him: Well, that's great. You know, you've drawn a tag in a drought year, and you, you know you've got your tag in your pocket. But that does not mean that you are going to see the quality of bulls that you might have seen uh, on great moisture years. And I would argue with anybody out there, and we'll be talking about more of this on the podcast when I get back from the doll sheep hunts. But if, if you have an Arizona tag this year, you better have expectations that are not as high as it would be in a moisture, uh, good moisture year because these bulls can be 10, 20, 30, even 40 inches smaller than they were last year. And I'm betting that this is going to be more like a 2002. The last really bad drought we had was 2002. Um The other thing you have to adjust your expectations for is the amount of bugling. In 2002, the bugling was widespread across the state. It was not very good. So you've got a situation where antler growth is not very good. You've got a situation where bugling is not very good. And your encounters become way more important, whereas on a good year, you know, you've got elk running all over, you've got, you know, you're boogering these elk, you're moving over on these elk, you know, you booger those, you go find these elk and they're bugling. I'm telling you guys right now, you should expect for a knockdown, dragout, you know, long fight that you're going to have on these archery elk seasons in some of these states, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, um, maybe even Nevada, maybe even uh, southern Utah, it's gonna be tough. I'm telling you right now. I've had some people try and argue with me, and I, you know, I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. So adjust your expectations. It doesn't matter how many years it took you to draw the tag. That is, it's not even a relevant point. Um, all that was is, you know, how long that you had to wait to get the tag. Unfortunately, you've now drawn the tag on a year that's pretty rough. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is if you've used a, your point guard option and you did buy a point guard where you spent the $5 and let's say you're looking for, say, a 370 bull or better, well, let me tell you, you're going to have a hard time in Arizona this year finding 370-plus bulls. So, I mean, if that's what you're basing your um, quality of hunt on or if it, you know you won't have fun unless you're chasing a bull of that caliber, in my opinion, I can already tell you right now that, you know, you might consider using your point guard. Now, if you drew with, you know, let's say 10 points or less, then, I you know, you've got really nothing to lose. But at some of those guys that have 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 points, and, you know, this is your one time to draw your Arizona tag, and you've done that, I'm sorry, but you've drawn on a bad antler growth year, and... You know, whoever your outfitter is or whoever you're hunting with, I mean, like, start looking at the trail camp pictures right now and, you know, start trying to make the determination whether you want to, you know, proceed with your hunt or whether you want to, you know, use your point guard and push it off to the next year. Because if you have all those points, you, you're, in essence, you're just going on an elk hunt. And you're not going to get, in my mind, you're not going to get the true Arizona experience of, you know, multiple three fifty plus bulls during the hunt, and you know, everybody's you know had a glimpse of a three sixty to three seventy, three eighty type bull, maybe even better. Chris, your thoughts? There
2: is literally nothing for me to add. That's <laughs> you, you nailed did it. I, I mean... Did I just deflate your balloon? <laughs> no, well, no, I, I, I literally, uh, it's funny. I've got a, I. I was planning here shortly to make a phone call to my my hunter this year uh, and the folks I'm working with and, and talk to him. Because if, if all of a sudden uh, I got a phone call and, and he was like, you know, I'm thinking about turning my tag in, i literally be like, no worries, brother. I understand. I mean, literally. I, I at this point have been shocked that I haven't gotten that call. I, I'm serious because that exactly, um, if you've drawn your tag with max points, oh, you've got an investment, man. You know what I mean? You, you've got an investment in that, and just on random of all randoms, you're gonna get a bum deal. Eh, if you've got that point guard, I don't know. I you know me. I love being down there. I love hunting, and I and I, I don't even need antlers. I just love mature animals. But golly, you know, you're talking 20 years, and then all of a sudden a bum deal. You, you get a, a a year where it's just poor. I can't blame anybody for just taking that and going, yeah, maybe I'll turn it in this year and I'll play my play my cards and see what happens next year because that's 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 tough. I mean, so no, absolutely. I think everything you said is right smack dab on the money
1: well and i think too you know some people say well we've already got a big bull on trail camera great i'm not saying <laughs> that there's not going to be a couple across the state that you know a couple yeah. good bulls yeah always that's,
2: it well and that. but in
1: general too. i've seen it and i've been out there every elk rut for a long long time and I've seen the good and the bad and I'm telling you Arizona on a drought year is tough so yeah you know if you if, if you've got you know a you know fairly random draw you know you you had very little to to lose like go and have a great time but adjust your expectations of hey I'm not going to see a 350 bull every single day and you know some of the Colorado and some of the Idaho guys are listening going listen to these babies they're sitting there whining about not seeing a 350 bull but when you routinely go out and elk hunt and see a 350 bull every single day you get used to it what I'm telling people is adjust your expectations and go okay this is going to be a little bit different hunt I drew with five bonus points I really have nothing to lose I'm gonna uh, go. I'm gonna really get mentally tough, and gonna go in and have a great elk hunt. I'm gonna adjust my strategies. I'm gonna adjust the way I hunt. I'm gonna realize that I have to probably be a little more ginger with the elk. I can't, you know, just blow and go. That I have to treat every circumstance, every encounter with an elk, you know, as as this may be one of my best shots, and don't take any days for granted. Where you know, when it's good and everything's wet and antler growth. Through the roof and bulls are screaming like in Arizona you literally can just start you know picking a place on a map and go I'm going to go here of course you'll you know you'll hear four five six bulls bugling yeah you know on a drought year I've seen it where you know John McClendon on one of his videos he talks about I forget what year it was, but where he had a early early muzzleloader hunter in unit ten, and he's like, I think he I think what he said is he went the whole archery season and never heard a bull bugle during daylight hours, and then he finally heard a bull bugling on the muzzleloader hunt, and they shot it. Like, here's yeah. a guy that spends as much time, you know, as he's spent double the time that I've spent as far as number of years, and. You know, I've heard multiple situations where guys have gone drought years and literally not heard an elk bugle during daylight hours. So, if you're prepared for that, then you can hit the ground running and have a great hunt.
2: Yeah, and 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 if and that's the thing is if if you know people that are listening to this from other states or, or that don't put in for these premium you know tags and units, again, yeah, they're shaking mind their heads. Well, well, no. But, I mean, they, they they can shake their head because they're they're shaking their head from a, a standpoint that is not. You, they're they're comparing apples to oranges. They're they're comparing their apples to someone else's oranges because you're you're not putting in unit nine Arizona or unit ten Arizona because I I want to kind of go on a cool elk hunt. No, no, that's right. not that's not that that's not what you're doing. You you know, it's like someone in Colorado saying, "Oh, I'm going to put in for unit two two 201, 10, unit one." Uh, you know if i can find a a nice five point i'd be happy no you're not putting in 20 years because you want to you know go and have a camp that you might be able to shoot a five point that's not what that that's not what we're talking about so yeah you know i'm i'm looking at the fact that you know for my personal hunt you know most of the states and most of the area in colorado where i hunt is in that you know, it, it's in the the southern two-thirds of the state, so even I'm looking at it going, oh, I'm still going to hunt, you know, and, and that, I guess, and I kind of laughed at myself because that's another discussion you and I were going to have, um, but, you know, I'm still going to hunt, but, you know, I'm, I'm over the counter, so I, I am. I'm, I'm, look, my expectation is I want to go have the experience of just going out and elk hunting and see if I can't put an elk on the ground, but you know, when we are talking about putting in for 20 years for a certain class and age or whatever, in an animal and a certain experience, well, okay, 20 years, that's a, that's a hell of an investment. So be a little picky. And then you said about the game cameras and people showing pictures of big bulls. Well, you and I know exactly. I mean, that's the number one thing that I just kind of laugh with some of these outfitters with the pictures because, you know, they'll share a picture and they won't share the, the, the you know, the date timestamp oh, look at this, we got this picture of this bull. Really? Is that bull Is that bull even still alive? Or was that picture taken like two years ago? And then even if you took a picture right now of that giant bull on that water hole, I mean, look at the giant bull at Flair. You know, was it last year or the year before, got killed, what, 23 miles from where he summers?
1: Yeah. I mean, these bulls Summers in nine and got killed in seven less, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, so some of that stuff I look at, I do. I laugh because I'm like, okay, yeah, people just don't understand that. Yes, the bull is there, but that's again, you. This whole issue with trail cameras. You're in the summer. You're catching the bulls on their summer range, not necessarily where they rut. And so, yeah, oh, we got a picture of a big bull. Whoop do. Because he's going to be 15 miles from here in the blink of an eye. As soon as those ha- those antlers start to harden up, he looks at his watch, he goes, I got to go. And then yep. two days later, he's, he's not even the same county.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's take a quick break here.
0: Guys, I want to thank Kuiu.com, that's K-U-I-U.com, for their sponsorship of this podcast. And Kuiu Ultralight Hunting makes the best ultralight hunting products on the market today. From items like the Peloton 240 Full Zip Hoodie the Chugach NX Rain Jacket, and the Super Down Ultra Jacket, which will be going on my hunts to the Northwest Territories here soon. If you're talking about Kuyu Pants, some of the pants that I like are the Guide Pant, that's for colder weather hunts, like down in January on my Kuster hunts. You've got the Tiburon Pant for the Warm Season hunts, that's got the dock technology where it breathes really well. You've got the ATTACK pant, which is probably their number one selling pant. You've got their new PRO pant, which is their all-season, all-terrain hunting pant with a new, quiet, ultra-suede foam-line knee pad. It has four-way stretch. It only weighs 19.6 ounces. It's got the Torre DWR water repellency. It's got the Make Spec for odor control. Kuyu's rain gear is the best on the market in my opinion. I routinely wear the Chugach NX rain pant and rain jacket. Uh, I also have worn on some of the lower 48 hunts the Ultra NX rain pant and jacket. Some of the other pieces you've got to check out or are the Peloton which is their synthetic version. Either the 130 zip-off bottoms or the 200 zip off bottoms they also make them in a 145 merino wool or a 210 zip off bottom merino wool these are so convenient you can leave your boots on you just drop your pants unzip your long underwear and you're off and running again another amazing product are the tiburon shorts if you see any of the pictures of me in the summer on my instagram account 99.9 percent of the summer i'm wearing tiburon shorts on all my hiking, all my fishing excursions, it's got the air airdot technology. Uh, they breathe really well. They're very well fitted, and uh, you guys should check them out. The Tiburon short, fantastic product from Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu has an amazing selection of products from jackets and vests, pants and shorts, shirts and tops, footwear, accessories, lifestyle apparel. They have a wide range of packs from the Icon Pro to the Ultra. The sleep system, the Kuyu sleeping bag I use on all my hunts, and then the the tents the Mountain Star two person tent, the Storm Star tent, just phenomenal gear. Make sure to go to Kuyu, that's K U I U dot com, and check out all of the phenomenal gear that they provide. I want to thank the Outdoorsmans.com for their sponsorship of my podcast. I want to let you guys know they are the optics authority. And if you're looking for any binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, make sure to get a hold of the guys at the Outdoorsmans. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you get a 10% discount on all Outdoorsmans products. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or you can call them at 1-800-291-8065.
1: Okay, Chris, um, we've got another question. Uh, This one should be fairly um, easy to answer and uh, shorter than the last response. Uh, It says, this is from Joey Ween, W-I-E-M on Instagram. I have a question, and maybe it can be a podcast question for you and Chris. Uh, Is it your experience that when a bull is raking a tree that its eyes are closed, giving the hunter an opportunity to rush in close? Uh, I heard this somewhere and wanted to cross-reference it. My answer to that would be anytime you're out there uh, elk hunting and you hear an elk actively raking a tree where you can hear the brush, you can hear the antlers against the tree limb, and or if you hear two elk fighting, whether it be you know clicking antlers or actively really aggressively fighting, I would tell you from a standpoint of trying to get in close, yes, if I hear that I'm going to be kind of like moving in on the water hole where if you hear splashing, I'm going to be moving quick with my feet, scanning fast with my eyes, but trying to close the distance as fast as you can. Uh, are their eyes closed when they're very aggressively fighting, uh, their, their eyes actually, like, roll back, and yes, I've seen it where their eyes actual eyes are open, but they're rolled back. Um, I've seen them with their eyes open. Uh, I've seen elk when they're rubbing. It seems like the more aggressive that they start rubbing, the more that they do um, close their eyes and or kind of protect their eyes. Uh, and I have been able to literally sneak up where you could almost touch the elk when they're rubbing. When they when you hear the noise, your feet are moving. When you when when you don't hear the noise, you immediately stop. When they go back to rubbing, your your feet are moving because a lot of times they're going to rub, then they're going to stop and they're going to op- they're going to look around at their eyes. They're going to keep their antlers and their head where they're rubbing the scent and all the scent gland up on the trees, they're literally going to have the branch bent over, but they're just going to stop. They'll kind of look around, then they'll go back to rubbing. So for me, it's a matter of timing. When you hear the noise, you're moving. When you don't hear the noise, you have to stop. And it's not like you stop five or six seconds after you hear it. As soon as you hear it stop, you stop. And the closer you get, uh, the keener you have to be on timing exactly when you hear the noise when you don't hear the noise and i will tell you that i prefer if if, if i can put my binoculars on them and if i can see that the elk butt is to me and he's rubbing his antlers I, I would venture to bet that you could literally if he keeps rubbing you can go get as close as actually tapping him on the on the butt I, I, i've i've not actually done that but i've been almost as close to just literally literally touch them um when they're facing you you have to be a lot more um you have to pay a lot more attention to that time when they stop because they do open their eyes and they kind of look around and then they go back to rubbing chris yeah absolutely
2: the only thing i'm going to add to that is uh, and I'm going to pay attention to what they are rubbing on. So Jay, what you're used to? I mean, you down where you spent a lot of time hunting. Now you've got pine trees, but you got those junipers and, and that type of stuff too. So
1: if I thought you were to gonna... say cactus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They were rubbing on cactus. Um, yeah. So.
2: But if they're if they're rubbing on uh, stuff that has a lot of low lying branches and a lot of or if they're rubbing into some shrubs and it just t- the more nasty branches and stuff that they're tossing around the more likely they're going to have their eyes protected and closed to to a certain degree. But you can also hear bulls; they'll be rubbing on a say a, a nice smooth pine tree, or they've already rubbed all the, the low branches off, and they're just scraping the bark of a of a sizable tree well there's really nothing flying around per se they're just rubbing and and just you know playing around if that's the case then their eyes are probably going to be more open so take a look at what they're rubbing on if they're thrashing branches and and stuff around more likely they're going to have their eyes closed and then i agree everything you said jay you know if the if there's motion you are in motion as soon as they stop you stop the other thing I would say is, if you can, to the greatest extent possible, and and I'm almost willing to lean in the direction of, I would almost be willing to flirt with my wind a little bit, but go in a direct route. Go straight at them. If you had, straight if at you the can, noise. Yeah, straight at it. Don't worry so much about you know, kind of swinging around downwind. If their eyes are open, if you're doing lateral movement while they're rubbing, if their eyes are open, they will catch that lateral movement. They'll stop and they'll look. Um, But their depth perception, especially out of one eye, is, is poor. So movement that is moving straight at them, is going to be much much more difficult for them. During that while they're while they're doing that is going to be much harder, almost impossible for them to pick up on versus lateral movement. So if the wind isn't quite perfect but it but it, it could work but it might not be perfect, I would move straight at the animal rather than move laterally trying to get the wind right. I think he'll, I, you, you're better off just moving straight at him, close the distance right now, move in, get that up, and if he's, and especially he's broadside or quartering away, or quartering away from me, or whatever, you just shot up, smack him,
1: but, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, he's, I'll take that even further, if you hear him aggressively raking, like, go straight at the noise, and go as fast as, like, I've, yeah. at times, I've literally take off running, yeah, and then... Of course, I'm waiting to hear if he's going to slow down. If he starts slowing down his raking, I start slowing down. Um, As well as back to the fighting portion, if you hear elk aggressively fighting, like, I mean, dirt, clod, flying, fighting, which I've been fortunate to be very close to many times, and you literally don't care about wind, you don't care about anything, you run to that fight as fast as you can get there. You go in a direct line, the noise you hear, when you hear them clanking, the whole time you're running, you're listening to them fight. You're trying to close the ground as fast as possible because they absolutely do not care about anything. I can't tell you how many times I've literally ran up on elk and they're 15 yards away and I'm just standing there. I ran up there. Other elk have Scattered out those two bulls that are aggressively fighting, they could care less. Cows they don't, even know. Yeah, they don't even know. Yeah, they don't even know. in there with, yeah, I I charge in there, and and run in there as rec, you know, just as fast as I can, and the whole time I'm trying to evaluate, you know, is one of these bulls a shooter? Like, you know, I I'm eyeballing it, but I'm trying to get as close as I can because then if it is a shooter. Then you try and just decide, you know, do you shoot them when they're locked up? Do you shoot them when they break apart? Like, I mean, but you can get very, very close to elk. And then uh, back to the raking, uh, it's deadly. If you hear them raking and their butt is to you, you literally can t- touch them on the butt. Yeah, You can't pussyfoot around. You have to just charge in there. I agree. Chris, um, we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh I want to ask you what's going on with uh, the elk module and row hunting resources. I, I've, I've had uh, several people uh, uh, tell me that they're excited to see some of the new stuff that you've got going on this summer. I know you usually plan uh, in the summer to do behavioral stuff and, you know, studying vocalizations. Um, ha- how's your summer looking this year?
2: Uh, it's good. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a different summer as far as work goes. I'm, I'm getting – I'm getting the new studio up, uh, trying to get that finished so we can launch into some some new stuff. You and I have kind of talked about that, and we'll we'll see some more about that later. But uh, yeah, we've got some new stuff that are, that's going to start hitting the elk module. I've got some videos now that need to be uploaded. So yeah, and and some of them, the the one that I I'm you know I, I'm interested to see what people think about it is this was down in Arizona. Uh, here we are, the last week of of uh, September. And I mean, not a peep. I mean, just not a peep. And you, I mean, you couldn't buy an elk. And it just—you sit there and you, you wonder. Here we are in the most amazing piece of elk country in the in the United States, and it's dead. Well, you know, some people would get discouraged by that, or or or, you know, upset by that. And I just sat there and I just said, I had to laugh. I just had to stop and laugh and like. How amazing is this? You know, and I taught in the video, I, I talk about, you know, what's going on. I mean, you know, there's. It doesn't matter if you're private land. It doesn't matter if you're public land. It doesn't matter if you're in a premier unit. There are certain environmental factors that will absolutely flat out affect whether or not elk are going to be active and and whether they're whether they're not. And if you don't know, if you don't know that, and you don't know how to handle that, you're you're you're. There's going to be times where you just you're just standing there, dumbfounded, or like I don't know what to, what that, what the heck. Well, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged because it's ju- it's not. Well, you know, someone screwed it up, or oh, they're call shy, oh, they're this, or they're it's that this. dang it's, moon. Like, it's that dang yeah, moon exactly, Chris, exactly. <laughs> it's like the wolves, wolves, <laughs> it's wolves, the
1: wolves, wolves did it, <laughs> yeah, or or
2: you know, too much public pressure. Ah, there's too many hikers, or what? I, yeah. you could
1: you could sit there the and mountain bikers
2: yeah exactly it's all you can make these excuses that you want but um so no there's we I, I'm getting ready to get geared up on to start dumping some new stuff on the on the module and and do just a lot more uh just just yeah it, it it's gonna be fun I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from folks already that they've been out there kind of over the years have, have gone different avenues of education and then they they jump onto my stuff and then they're like, my gosh. I didn't realize there was this. I was like, "Yeah, I told you." I mean, when I say there's like almost forty hours worth of stuff on there, people
1: are like, "Yeah, but I, but I, I didn't realize." <laughs> yeah, the word the word comprehensive doesn't cover it. It's yeah, again, kind of, kind of, yeah, gl- I mean, you know, it's that not, kind of gl- glazes yeah. over the you know, just kind of barely, yeah. you know, comprehensive yeah. is not even a word that even, but. Uh, no. Well, uh, congrats with all that you do with the elk module at Row Hunting Resources and um, encourage the listeners to check you out. Um, yeah. Chris, as always, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can find you, uh, how they can follow along and what have you, and I always appreciate you having me on. Oh, I, I love being on here with you, brother. Uh, no, just always, it's just Row, it's
2: spelled R-O-E, Row Hunting Resources. And, I mean, whether it's social media stuff, Instagram Facebook. Uh, you can look up our YouTube channel that way, and, and the website is just rowhuntingresources. com. And and folks, don't forget that you know you put in the J. Scott podcast promo code, it knocks twenty percent off. So you can't. I mean, it's, it's you can't beat it. We're and, saving and money. Now,
1: we're saving money. Exactly.
2: See, you're see, sa- it's it's just like <laughs> anybody else. I saved I save twenty percent. So <laughs> no, I mean, and now is about the perfect time too. Quite honestly, this is when. Uh, a lot of people subscribe, and this is why I do focus on putting a lot of the new material on now, because there is—I mean—you you can get a full year subscription if you want, but it, for those people that just want, like—I mean, the cheapest, of cheap, cheap, cheap option—you got the three-month subscription, and I mean, literally, you can go July, August, and September. Now you've got two months prior to your season. And then you have it through the month of September. And a lot of people utilize that option. Um, and that's why I do start focusing on dumping the, the new material now because, you know, so many people are looking for it. So that's always a, a very, very good option. And and for those people that go, Oh my gosh, I want more time. Well, you can always upgrade. I mean, you, you can always do this, the full subscription, but no, July, August and September. This is the push. This this time, everybody starts getting excited. I'm I've, I'm actually out shooting my bow early this year. I've got a new setup. I'm, I'm trying to get my butt in shape. Again. <laughs> so awesome. no, now it's the crunch time. It's, it's coming quick, man. It's coming quick.
0: Right
1: on, man. Yeah, they'll be bugling before we know it. Um, sounds good. We're actually, I'm looking out the window. We're getting a shower here. Um, hopefully the shower is hitting this Lake Christine fire a couple miles from my house here. And, um, yeah, it's it's puddling up pretty good out there so that's great nice. and uh chris as always thanks for coming on god bless you man uh i'll talk to you when i get back from my doll sheep hunts i guess Sounds after good. my first doll sheep hunt between between my second one
2: exactly yeah not not a bad problem to have no Brother, have fun. That, be that, that
1: flipped off my tongue pretty good. That was, uh, you know, <laughs> between doll sheep hunts. It's, I'll probably never be able to say that again in my life. So. Yeah, you're, you're, living, you're living rough right now, I'm telling
0: you. You're living rough. Yeah. Cool. Right all right, me. brother, be safe, have fun, and uh, we'll talk soon. Guys, I want to thank Chris Rowe for coming on and spending time with us. I also would like to thank you guys, the listeners, for all your support of this podcast. I appreciate all of the messages that I've gotten wishing me well on my doll sheep hunts, and I really appreciate that. We're going to do uh, a lot of great podcasts after I get back from my doll sheep hunts, and I think you're going to like uh, what I'm going to do with these doll sheep hunts, how I'm going to chronicle them. Uh, I'm going to try and bring uh, the info and uh, the way the hunt goes down right to you. So hope you guys enjoy enjoy it and are looking forward to it. Uh, Also, I get emails a lot from you guys asking, what can you do for me? Uh, You guys do enough. You support me, you support this podcast, and you support the sponsors. And I really appreciate you guys uh, putting an effort to support the sponsors that support this podcast. Guys, until next time, God bless you, and uh, we'll talk to you after the doll sheep hunts.